Um, we're going to continue just going through uh, our series in the, in the book of Philippians. And so I'm going to invite you to open there, uh, Philippians chapter 1. Yes, we're still in chapter 1. Um, in fact, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be in this section that we are, are started last week. We're going to uh, continue in it for, for a few weeks. And um, the, the next few weeks, last week, this week, the next few weeks in this section are going to be uh, very pastoral. And um, when you hear the word pastoral, you may think uh, that it'll be soft and tender and, and loving. And, and, and it will be loving. But when I say the word pastoral, I'm not just thinking... Uh, just really nice and kind and, and sweet and soft and, you know, uh, not the, the, the downy uh, little teddy bear is not what I think when I think of pastoral. Uh, what, I'm, what the word pastor means, it means shepherd. And so th- this, is, this section that we're looking at, verses 9 through 11, is a, it is a pastoral section. It is a shepherding section. And so I, I hope to... to to shepherd you. I hope to pastor you through these next few weeks and verses uh, in a way that um, we would ultimately all live our lives to bring praise and glory to God. That's the aim. That's the goal. That's what we, we want to do as God's people. That's what we were created to do as image bearers of God, to bring honor and glory and praise to God. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we want to live our lives in such a way that does that. And this section of scripture shows us exactly how to do that. And so Philippians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 9 through 11. And let's read it again this morning. It says, and it is my prayer, Paul writing, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, In our time together, speak to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that we can can sense, we can feel the, the very manifest presence of your spirit, the tangible presence of your glory here with us today. Uh, Lord, speak to our hearts, open our eyes to see the truth, open our ears to hear the truth, let it go deep within our hearts, let it produce fruit, the fruit of righteousness, and that we would live our lives in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, you've called us to be salt in a world that is decaying. You've called us to be light in a world of darkness. Through our time in your word, I pray that our saltiness would increase. I pray that you would help us to shine our lights more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now last week we looked at the first part of this passage which was uh, abiding in love and abounding in love and that our love would abound more and more and and we saw that this really is the first step in living a life that brings honor and glory to God. The, The first step is that we must love God, amen? We must love God. And we must love others, and our love should abound, it should grow, it, it, it should be manifest. And that is the, the on-ramp, if you will, to bringing honor and glory to God. And so we looked at last week the Bible's definition of love, God's definition of love, that we, are, are not, we do not have the freedom and the liberty to simply define the word love however we would like to define it. That when God says that the first commandment is to love him, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he himself has an idea of what love looks like. And for us to obey that command, which we should, we need to understand what God means by love and not take our cues on what the word love means from the world or the culture or just our own understanding. And so we looked at that the greatest example of the love of God was put on display at the cross of Jesus Christ. That God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. Love is sacrifice. Love is laying down our lives for the ones that we love. That's what love is. And so that's the first step is abounding in love. And we saw last week how contained within this short little prayer, these three little verses, though they're only just a few words long, is actually the blueprint for for the whole Christian life. 
the, the step-by-step blueprint for, for how to live our lives as believers. And of course, step one was abounding in love. But the ultimate aim for our lives is to bring praise and glory to God. And this little prayer is like the, the roadmap. It's, I know we don't use maps anymore. It's like the GPS that, that, that teaches us how to get to the destination. We all want to bring glory to God with our lives. How do we get there? Well, what's the path that we must take if we're going to do it? And right here in this passage is a seven-step process. We looked at last week, number one. Number two is growing in knowledge and discernment. Number three is approving of what is excellent. Number four is, is living a pure and holy and blameless life. Number four is being ready for the day that the Lord returns. Number four, no, number five. Number six is being filled with the fruit of righteousness. And then number seven, all of these things lead up to and culminate in living a life that brings God glory. Now, I want to point uh, your attention to one word here this morning, a key word, an important word in verse 9. Paul says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's what we looked at last week. But this small little word, the next word is with, with. So a love that is abounding more and more, a love towards God that is growing more and more, a love towards others that grows more and more, but it's not by itself. It's not alone. This love for God comes with something. And what is it that comes with it? What is it that, that should be with our love for God that abounds more and more? It's actually very consequential it should be a love with knowledge and all discernment. Love for God is good. It's the first place. It's where we all start. Abounding in love is great. We're, we're moving forward. We're progressing in the Christian life. But it's not a love that abounds in isolation. It's actually a love that abounds with knowledge and all discernment. Now, unfortunately, the, the, the unfortunate truth is that many do not continue to progress beyond simply loving God. Many who would even profess faith in Christ and profess that they are Christians, they do not move beyond this step. They do not move beyond it to knowledge and discernment and to approving of what is excellent, into living a holy and blameless life, into bearing the fruits of righteousness and therefore, they do not move into living a life that brings honor and glory to God. And so while many today would confess, I love God, if they're not moving down the road, if they're not adding to their love for God these things, it's cause for concern. Many today believe that love for God is simply the destination. We've arrived. I love God. I've arrived. So let's put it in park and let's stop and let's hang out here. Not realizing that love for God is simply the on-ramp. Love for God is, is simply how we begin the Christian life. And this kind of thinking, this kind of faith is the most surface level kind of faith. It's a faith that truly is an inch deep. And what ultimately will happen is it becomes a faith that is defined on their terms and not on God's terms. It becomes a faith that, is, that they have created for themselves and not the faith that the book of Jude talks about that was handed down once for all, delivered to the saints. What eventually can happen is if someone leaves their car in park, if they leave their life in park here at this love for God for stage, what they end up doing is they end up defining what love is for themselves and not looking to God's word to define love. They become the ultimate arbiters of, of what it means to love God. And what's alarming is I believe this is the group of people that Jesus describes in Matthew 7, 21, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he goes on to say that many will say on that day, 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? But Jesus will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And so we don't want to do that. Amen? If we're going to live our lives in such a way that brings honor and glory to God, it has to be loving God, but also adding to it also with knowledge and discernment. So let's press on today into knowledge and discernment. You see, what God is talking about here is not an uninformed love, but a well-informed love. Not, a, not an ignorant love, not a love that is is totally unaware of God and who he is and his word and his commandments, but a, a well-informed love, a, a robust love. You see, it's simply not enough to say, I love God. You must actually love God. Our, our society and culture confuses those things. We think that loving someone is simply telling them that we love them. That's why there's so much weight and emphasis put on saying, I love you. Have you noticed that in the, the, the culture and in, in movies, TV shows, if you guys still watch those things? That there's all this emphasis placed on the time when someone says, I love you to the other person, right? There's all this emphasis placed on saying, I love you. But do you love them? That's what actually matters. Can we agree? I can tell my wife I love her till I'm blue in the face. I can say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if I'm not faithful to her, I don't love her. I don't love her. It's not simply saying the words. It must actually be true in your heart. It must actually be true. Jesus said of the people of his day, of, of the generation that he lived in, he, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If you love God, you will live a life that is faithful to God. If I love my wife, I will be faithful to my wife. Amen? Amen. It, it's more than just saying, I love you. Now, certainly it includes saying, I love you, right? I'm not, making, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that men, you never have to tell your wives you love them. But what I am arguing is that you also have to love them. And if we're going to love God, it's not just saying we love God. It's not just coming to church and singing the songs. It must actually be in our hearts. Not just honoring God with our lips, which we should do, but also in our hearts. And so if you love God, you will want to know God. You will want to know his nature. You will want to know his character. You will want to know his ways. You will want to know his commandments. Think about all of the things that genuine love produces. Genuine love produces devotion. Genuine love produces commitment. Genuine love produces affection. Genuine love produces excitement. Genuine love produces passion, desire, self-sacrifice. Genuine love produces security and patience and faithfulness. Genuine love for God will also produce these things. A devotion to God, a commitment to God, an affection for God, a desire to know God. If you love someone, you will go to great lengths to spend time in their presence. If you love someone, you will go to great lengths to know them, to be close to them, to have fellowship with them. So let us not confuse ourselves with so many in the world today who would profess, I love God, but their lives reflect nothing of the love of God. The Bible says that to do that is to deceive yourselves. No, if we're going to confess that we love God, our lives should align with it. Amen. 
Jesus even put it this way in, in the greatest commandment. When they asked him, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. With all of your mind. Remember, we're talking about love with knowledge and discernment. And so loving God with your mind, loving God with your mind. You see, Christianity is not a mindless faith. Christianity is not a mindless faith. In fact, it's incredibly rich and theologically complex. The, the Christian faith is not simply... Uh, uh, emotionalism and sentimentality. It's simp it's simp Christianity is not just, you know, getting a good buzz from God and, and, and feeling, a, you know, some goosebumps on your arm. That's, it's more than that. It certainly could involve that. And I wouldn't say that that's bad, but it should, it should be more than that. Loving God with our minds. Loving God with our minds. And so Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus doesn't come and say, I'm the way, the good vibes, and the life. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way, and warm, fuzzy feelings. No, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the Christian faith claims to have the truth. The Christian faith claims to, to know the truth because our founder, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is the full embodiment of truth. And truth cannot be discerned, listen to me, truth cannot be discerned by feeling. Truth must be discerned with the mind. With the mind. Because our feelings are prone to Deception. Our, our, our feelings can be swayed so easily. Have you found that to be true? There, there must be something underneath. There must be, there must be a bedrock of truth. And in fact, according to Jesus, Christianity should be a, a deep well of truth that we hold on to. Karl Marx, and I don't often quote Karl Marx in my sermons, but he seems to be having a resurgence these days. This is what Karl Marx had to say about religion. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Karl Marx said that religion is something that is used to dumb down society, to, to make societies numb to the realities of the world, to, to blind their eyes to reality, that, that for people to truly be aware of what's happening in, in the world, that they, they must shed all religious ideas, they must shed all notions of, of God, and they must shed all notions of the holy and the transcendent. That was Karl Marx. That religion dumbs us down, that religion numbs us. But the truth is the exact opposite. And what we can see over the last hundred years in our society, as our society has adopted more and more of Karl Marx and less and less of Jesus Christ, our, our world today, our culture today, is, has not trended towards um, uh, intellectualism. Our society has not trended towards uh, vast, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the, the, the general populace, the, the culture today is more dumbed down than it's ever been. The great, the great populace, the, the, the masses of people, as Karl Marx was saying, that religion dumbs down the masses. In fact, what we've seen is that secularism is actually what dumbs down the masses. The general populace today is less informed and less intelligent and less educated than they were 100 years ago which is amazing because we have so much technological advancement, yet people today are more naive, people today are more gullible, people today are, are less informed than ever before because they have, we have not pursued Christ, instead we've pursued secularism. I love watching these videos where 
you know, there's a guy and he has a mic and he goes on the street or he goes on the college campus and he asks people questions. I love those videos. I can watch those videos for hours, okay? This week I was watching this video of a guy uh, going on the street and um, he went up to people and he said, can you, can, how many of the Avengers can you name? How many of the Avengers? If you don't know what an Avenger is, you're doing good, okay? <laughs> we all laugh because we all know who the Avengers are. They're comic book characters, okay? And so people, you know, can name them and it's Iron Man and it's Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan? is he one of them? I don't even, I don't know, I don't know who they are. But people can name like five and ten of these Avengers. And so then he, he would follow, his follow-up question was, how many former U.S. presidents can you name? And they all go, uh, Barack Obama, uh, that was it, that was it. People are more informed on who the Avengers are than former presidents. Now, I wish you would have asked them, how many of the apostles can you name? You know, that would have been interesting. Um, the opposite is true. Christianity does not dumb down and numb the mind. In fact, Christianity opens our eyes to see what is really happening in the world. Amen. It doesn't make us numb to the realities of the world. It, it makes us attuned to it. It sets our minds on fire as we contemplate the holy, as we contemplate transcendent reality, as we contemplate the eternal God. It doesn't narrow our minds, it broadens our minds. It doesn't dumb us down, it, it actually pushes us to, to pursue God and to love him with all of our mind, to, to make the best use of the mind that God has given us, to be a faithful Christian. I must, I must challenge my mind, I must be well read, I, I must not just numb my mind with the, the nonsense of the world if I'm going to love God with my mind. But many today do not. Many today, because of the pursuits of secularism, numb their minds with the most trivial of pursuits, with, with the most vain and inconsequential things in this life. There was a recent study that came out from the United States Bureau, Bureau of Labor and Statistics. The study came out in July. And it said that most Americans spend five hours a day essentially watching television and playing video games and looking at Facebook and whatever whatever other book they've invented since Facebook, right? That, that we have eight hours to sleep, we have eight hours at work, that's 16 hours. We probably spend about two hours of eating. That gets me, what, to 18 hours. That leaves, what, six hours in the day left. That The majority of the rest of the Americans use their, t their time just consumed with trivial nonsense. Facebook, Netflix, YouTube, just entertainment. Listen, that's not loving God with your mind. That's not loving God with your mind. No, we need to add to our love knowledge. Not to be dumbed down. Not to be blind to the realities of the world. In fact, this was very important to the writers of the New Testament, to the apostles. This was very important. Romans 1.3, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware 2 Corinthians 1.8, we don't want you to be uninformed. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. 2 Peter 1.5, for this very, very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. With knowledge. And Jesus himself said this as he prayed to the Father in the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 3, he said, This is eternal life, 
that we would know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Eternal life is is knowing God. Eternal life is, is knowledge of God. And so we must add to our love knowledge. Well, how do we do that? How how do we add knowledge and discernment to our love that is abounding? I I only know of one way, to be honest. It's to study the Word of God. It's to study the Word of God. Now, notice I didn't say read the Word of God. Now, it's important to read the Word of God. Don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't read the Word of God. That's not what I'm saying. But, but there's something beyond just reading the Word of God which gets into studying the Bible, studying the Word of God. And there's only one way to do it. It's a four-letter word, T-I-M-E. It's time. It's time. To study the Word of God, it takes time. You might say, well, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to study the Word of God. Listen, you and I, we all have the exact same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in the day. Not a single one of us has an extra hour in the day than anybody else. We've all got 24 hours. We decide how we use those 24 hours every day. And if, if, if we're anything like the average American, we're spending too much time on things that don't matter. And not enough time in the Word of God. Not enough time studying the Word of God. We must saturate our minds with the Word of God. It takes time. You say, I don't have time. Make the time. Make the time. Decide there are things that are less important than me studying the Word of God. I'm going to cut those things out of my life so that I can spend more time studying the Word of God. Get your priorities realigned. There's, pray and ask God, Lord, where, where are areas where I am wasting time? Did you know wasting time is a sin? It's a sin to waste time. Because the Bible says we must redeem the time because the days are evil. If I am wasting my time, that means I'm not redeeming my time. What, the, what that means is that I should be looking for, for places that I can cut stuff to refocus my time, my energy, my attention, my thoughts, my mind on things that matter. Redeeming the time. Now, I'm not saying that we can't ever have times of leisure. I'm not saying that you can never watch a movie. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we can't be like everybody else, that that is what they spend their life on. You understand? Most Americans, if if we're to believe this report, which I have no reason to doubt, they work, they sleep, they eat, and then they consume media. And that's their life. And most Americans hate their job, okay? So they're, they're not even enjoying that. So what are they really living for? They're living for Netflix, They're living for social media. They're living for entertainment. I'm not saying you can never watch a movie. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that can't be the driving force of your life. That that can't be what, oh, I just can't wait to clock out of work so I can go and finish, you know, the office again for the 50th time going through the season of the office. You know, that, that, that can't be the focus. If it is the focus... I say this to you with all the love in my heart. Repent. 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 Realign your priorities. Redeem the time because the days are evil. It's not difficult. This is not difficult. It just takes discipline. It's not hard. If you can read, you can study the Word of God. If you can read, you can study the Word of God. In fact, this is why wherever Christianity has gone, that education goes as well. Because we want to teach people, we want to educate people, we want to show them how to read. Why? So that they can read the truth. So that they can read the Word of God. This is why when 
Islam takes over a country, the first thing that they do is they cut education for all the young girls. Because they don't want them to read. Why? Because they don't want them to know the truth. If you can read, you can study the Word of God. You say, well, I read it. I don't understand it. We want to help you understand it. We've got a two-year Bible course that was just made to help you understand the Bible. King's Bible Institute on Tuesday nights. Well, Tuesday nights don't work for me. You can do it online. Well, I don't have a computer. Go to BSF. Go to Bible Study Fellowship. Okay? Bible Study Fellowship is an incredible resource that's on at so many different churches and so many different times to make it available for you to study the Word of God, Bible Study Fellowship. Go talk to Steve Guajardo after church. He, he works for Bible Study Fellowship. He'll get you plugged in. Listen, moms, most of the Bible Study Fellowships during the day have child care where they teach your kids the Word of God, okay? So you, I can't go because I've got to take care of my kids. They'll teach your kids the Word of God. Listen, we're going to stand before God one day and we're not going to have a whole lot of excuses, okay? There, there's people who lived in the 1200s and the 1300s. They didn't have access to the Word of God. We've got access, unlimited access. This past week was the, the anniversary of, of the death of Wyndham, William Tyndale. William Tyndale was burned at the stake. You know what his crime was? He translated the Bible into English. That was his crime. He was burned at the stake for it. He wanted to put the Bible. He was the first man who, who, who took the Bible and translated it into English so that it could be in the common language of the people. We have the Bible. We have access to the Word of God. We must spend time studying it, saturating our minds and our thoughts with the Word of God so that we can train our minds to think in biblical categories. To train our mind to think in biblical categories. It's not just about accumulating knowledge, although knowledge is important. With knowledge, it moves beyond knowledge to rightly applying that knowledge. And moving into now discernment, knowledge and all discernment. Now, discernment is similar to wisdom. Wisdom is actually a, the category, and, and discernment is, is a subset of wisdom. What wisdom is, is rightly applying knowledge. So you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can have all the Bible knowledge in the world. But if you don't rightly apply it, you don't have wisdom. You see, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the Old Covenant. They knew the Scriptures really, really, really well. But they wrongly applied it. And they put Jesus on the cross. They didn't have wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. And discernment is a, a subset. Of, well, let me back up. Wisdom, to receive wisdom, what do you have to do? You have to pray. To receive wisdom, you have to pray. The Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him pray. And ask God. And God will give liberally to all who ask. So if you lack wisdom, all you need to do is pray. And the promise of God is that he will give you wisdom if you will ask for it. But to have wisdom, you must also have knowledge. Because wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. And so I cannot have wisdom unless I have knowledge. I cannot rightly apply the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his word, his commandments, his precepts. How do I live that out right here, right now? That's wisdom, but I can't do it if I don't have the knowledge, if I haven't studied God's Word. But if you have studied God's Word, you need to also be praying for wisdom, and God will give you wisdom. And discernment is a subset of wisdom. Discernment is being able to tell what is true and what is false. It's, it's being able to distinguish between the two. And how many of you know that sometimes that's not so easy? I mean, if you know that, that sometimes which side is true, which side is, is right, it seems like both sides have a, a, a good position, which is, is, is true and which is false. That takes discernment, which is a subset of wisdom. Another way of saying that true and false is 
is the source. Where is this coming from? Is the source of this idea, is the source of this thought, is the source of this opportunity, is it from God? Is it from man? Is it from the devil? What is the source of this? That's discernment. Being able to to tell where is this coming from? What is the source? Obviously, if it comes from God, it is true. It is true. And so discernment is, is taking the knowledge that we receive from the Word of God and then applying it to what we see and what we interact with in our day-to-day life every single day. Now, remember, this is on the pathway to bringing glory to God. You will not bring glory to God by, by, with an underutilized mind. You will not bring glory to God by using your mind to pursue frivolous things. You, you will not bring glory to God without the knowledge of God. You will not bring glory to God without exercising discernment in your life. And the only way to spot a lie is you must know the truth. The the only way to spot the lie is you must know the truth. And the truth is contained in the word of God. Jesus said to the father praying, he said, your word is truth. Praying for us, his people, he said, sanctify them in your word. Purify them in your word, for your word is truth. If you're going to argue with the Bible and you're going to argue that it is not true, what you're going to find is that you have ended up arguing against Jesus Christ. You you cannot reject the Bible and accept Christ. Jesus himself affirmed the Bible. He affirmed the Old Testament. He said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And so discernment is spotting the lies in the world. But to do that, we must know the truth and we must know the word of God. Now, here's why all of this matters. Here's why all of this matters. Because there is true and there is false. There is truth, and there are lies. There are lies. There are lies. There is the true gospel, which alone has the power to save sinners, and there are false gospels, which have no power to save sinners. This is why it matters. To live a life that brings glory to God, you must be able to discern between what is true and what is false. You must be able to discern what is the true gospel of Jesus Christ and what are false gospels. You will not bring glory to Christ by believing a false gospel. Flip over with me quickly to uh, Galatians chapter 1, a couple pages over in uh, the New Testament from Philippians. Galatians chapter 1. The churches in Galatia, Paul had planted them. They were doing well, but false teachers came in. They were teaching a false gospel. And so he writes this letter to shepherd them, to pastor them, to get them back on track. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So these people had received Christ. They had received the gospel. They had received Jesus. But now they're turning to something else. They're turning to something else. He calls it a different gospel. In verse 7, he clarifies, he says, not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, there are people today who want to sow lies into the gospel of Christ to distort it, to dilute it, to water it down, to render it ineffectual, to empty it of its power to save sinners. He says that these false teachers that are teaching them, that's exactly what they're doing. 
In verse 8, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That word accursed means anathema. It means eternally damned. That's heavy language. That's about the, the most weighty um, thing that you could ever levy on someone. If someone is preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. As we, verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching you, to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. He says they have deserted Christ. How did they do that? By following another gospel. This wasn't just something that was important in the New Testament. This wasn't just something that was relevant in Paul's day. Let me tell you, in every age, in every era, in every season of the church, there has been the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There has been the, the grace of God, the sinless life, the atoning sacrifice, faith, repentance of sin, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, forsaking the world to follow Christ. There, in every age, in every season of, of the church, there have been those faithful men who proclaimed that gospel. But also in every season, there have been those who have twisted the gospel, who have falsified the gospel, who have added to it and taken away from it and have emptied it of its power. And so in Paul's day, it was a works-based gospel. They had come in and they had taught that, that not, Jesus alone is not enough to save you. Faith in Christ is not alone. But you must as, also add to the work of Christ your own works. Your own works must be added to the work of Christ on the cross and that together with your works and Christ's work, it produces justification and salvation in your life. That is a false gospel. We are saved, justified, made right with God, declared righteous solely on the base of the work of Christ on the cross, period. It's none of our good works that merit salvation. It's a false gospel. But there are other false gospels in our world today. There's what's known as the prosperity gospel, which is that Jesus came and died on the cross to make you wealthy, and to just give you a bunch of money. And that if you turn to Christ and follow him, your pockets will be lined with gold. And that starts by sowing into my ministry. That's a false gospel. It's damnable. There's the self-help gospel. I could go on and on. Our time is running short. There's the gospel of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which teaches that Jesus is not God, but that he is a created being. There's the false gospel of the Mormons, which teaches that there's not one true God, but there's many gods. And that you yourself can be made a God with your own planet if you'll only follow the teachings of Joseph Smith. It is a false gospel. But if we will, we cannot spot the lie in these false gospels unless we know the true gospel. Unless we have studied the word of God. This is why it matters. There is good doctrine and there's bad doctrine. There's good theology and there's bad theology. And let me just tell you, just because something is popular, it doesn't mean that it is good and that it is sound. What sells books and gets likes on Facebook might actually not be good doctrine. In fact, Paul tells Timothy that the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's the gospel today of social justice. This is a works-based gospel. It tells us that we find salvation by doing the work of social justice. 
that we are not saved by the work of Christ, but that we are saved through our own good works. It is a false gospel, and it is sweeping across churches today. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved by the work of Christ. Now, should the work of Christ produce within our hearts good works? Yes. Yes. But we are not saved by the works that we do for ourselves or for others. 1 John 4, 1 says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, how do we test the spirits? What do we test them according to? By what standard do we hold spirits accountable? Do we test it by our experience? Do we test the spirits by what's popular in, our, in the world? Do we test the spirits by what's popular in other churches? No, we test it according to the Word of God. The Word of God. And this is why, just a side note, this is why we have made a commitment at Destiny to teach the Bible verse by verse, word by word, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because what's very easy to do, what, these, what all false teaching does is it takes the, the, the truth of the Word of God and removes it from its context and then it twists it. And it makes the Word of God say something that it never said. That's how false doctrine is, is that's where it comes from. And so we don't do that. We, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, word by word. It's why we're on week seven and we're still on verse nine of the first chapter of Philippians. Be, because listen, it, it's not just, as we do this, I'm also showing you how to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm not only teaching you the Word of God, I'm teaching you how to read the Word of God. I'm teaching you how to interpret the Word of God. I'm teaching you the, the, the right way to read it in its context and to explain it in its context. And if you pull it out, you can make it say something it never meant to say at all. How many of you have ever had words taken out of context? You know what that's like. That's what false teachers do. Matthew chapter 7. We'll, we're bringing this in for a landing. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That means that there are people who claim to be Christian who are not. That means that there are people who, who claim to teach the Word of God, but they do not. That, that means that, this is Jesus' words, beware of these people. Watch out for them. Use discernment. Take what you know of the Word of God. Is what is being said and taught, does it line up with the Word of God? Matthew 24, Jesus says, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. A little bit further, Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ, that's Messiahs, false Messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders. Wow. So just because a miracle is performed, it doesn't mean that that person's from God? Not according to Jesus. False messiahs, false prophets will perform great signs and wonders that would deceive even the elect if that were possible. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we must follow the admonitions of the scripture which tell us to sober up. To wake up. The church needs to wake up. The church has had its, the wool pulled over its eyes for far too long. L listen, there is a, the, the, the lie of secularism that, that 
If something is secular, that it is neutral, the church bought that lie hook, line, and sinker. It is not true. It is not true. Secularism is not neutral. It is at war with Christ and with his kingdom. And the church must wake up. You either serve Christ or you don't. You either serve Christ or you're a servant of Satan. That's the words of Christ himself. And we must recognize that, that, that either we are serving Christ or, or we are at war with Christ. And if, and if there is a system, if there is a, 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 if there is something that is not serving Christ, it is not neutral. In fact, it is at war with Christ. And so we must wake up. We must sober up. Why, why is it that we so easily turn off our minds, plop down on the couch, and soak up the ideologies of the world? These, these, these thoughts and these ideas that come through in entertainment, they are not neutral ideas. They are at war with Christ and his kingdom. They are at war with his word. You say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little bit here. It's just a little bit there. Listen, in, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes disguised as a serpent. And it says the serpent was more subtle, was crafty. You think you're, you think you're smarter than the devil? You're not. He's crafty. He's, he will undermine the truth of God's word in your life through these other means and these methods. And so the church must wake up. The church must sober up. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Jesus, Mark 13, 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Don't fall asleep like the, the virgins in that, uh, that story, but stay awake. Stay Fill with oil in your lamp. Keep your light lit. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. But I say this, brethren, the time is short. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Ephesians 5, 14. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Listen, we must move beyond simply saying, I love God. And we must study the word of God. We must add knowledge to our love. We must not have an immature and shallow faith, but a deep and rich and robust and well-informed faith so that we can discern what is true and what is false what is from God and what is not so that we can bring glory to God with our lives.